Hello, I'm Christopher Kassan, and this is Ireland's Edge. Welcome to our new series, where we'll be exploring our Schlievaha in its broadest sense, talking to activists, artists and more about how we can all contribute to the good life. On today's episode, what is the price of holding power to account? Carol Cadwalder won the Orwell Prize for her investigations of the shadowy role of data and donors in the 2016 Brexit referendum. Her reporting on the damaging influence of big tech and big money in our democracies has won her admirers and enemies all around the world. Since her last appearance at Ireland's Edge in 2019, Carol has fought a landmark libel case against Brexit donor Aaron Banks and played a key role in founding a new public service journalism group, The Citizens. In front of a live audience at Ireland's Edge in Dingle, Carol joined Maureen Kelleher to discuss the personal and the political. I think I came here first, was it 2018? Yeah. So I came here first in 2018, which was when we'd just broken the Cambridge Analytica story with, you know, it was the Observer and the New York Times, and they sort of caused this sort of big, you know, global sort of tech clash, really. And, um, but then things sort of kept on carrying on. And during that summer, I think probably just before I came to Dingle the first time, I'd broken another bit of the story, and that was about the relationship between the man who funded the Leave EU Brexit campaign, a businessman called Aaron Banks, and the Russian ambassador. And I had, with another journalist, Peter Dukes, we'd got hold of this stash of emails that showed that Aaron Banks and officials in the Russian embassy were emailing back and forth in the weeks before they launched the Brexit campaign. Then, on the day before they, they, launched, they did the big press launch, they were invited into the embassy, and he was offered these business deals um, through the Russian ambassador. And we could see from these emails that they continued negotiating these and having this relationship up, right up until the vote in... Um, 2016. So we, we broke this story in the sort of summer of 2018 and he was absolutely furious and there were sort of already like consequences then. He reported me to the police, he accused me of computer hacking and blackmail and all sorts of things. So it was already very fractious at that point. And then in 2019, before I came here the second time, I had... I did a, a talk at TED, the TED conference in Vancouver. And it was, it was like, the whole thing is, is that when you give talks, you, you're not there to break new stories or new information. I was just talking about my investigation and, and I just had one small reference to Aaron Banks in it. And, um, and essentially as a result of that, he then um, hit me with a lawsuit. And um, the whole thing about it was that he didn't sue TED, which has, is a multi-million pound media organisation, and he didn't sue The Guardian and Observer, which had first published the allegations. It was very much about going after me personally. And so that's been from when I was here last three years ago. That essentially has completely dominated my life since then. So um, you obviously... That was a case that was taken against you personally. You had to defend yourself on a personal basis. You met some of your crowdfunders around the town last night. But individually, this was 
a defence you had to mount. Can you talk us through the process of what happens when somebody, when you are accused of libel, the number of defences, what something like a meaning hearing means, and how your case evolved into the, 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 the final judgment, which was about journalism on the grounds of public interest? Yeah, so I think it was, I think it was just, I think the thing which was so shocking to me is that although I knew, obviously, we all know that libel exists. We know, you know, as journalists, you learn the law, you have your articles legal before they go in the newspaper. We know, like, it's incredibly difficult in the UK um, to publish information, even when you know it's correct. You know, you, there are, there, it's still to sort of get it in that there's very high bars. You know, you have to have evidentiary proof. You have to have gone to people and put the allegations to them and have their right to reply. It's a difficult process. And so, you know, we go through all of that as standard. And this had gone through that process. These same allegations were published like that in the Observer. And I think the, th the thing which sort of so, uh, you know, I hadn't fully appreciated until it happened to me is that it doesn't, that the, the whole thing about taking an action against a journalist is not necessarily even to win. It's just that you kind of destroy their life in the process and their financial security. Because the, the, you don't win. As, um, you can't win. At, there's no winning. All you can do is not lose. And to not lose will cost you up to a million pounds. I mean, the, uh, you know, I was so extraordinarily lucky to have had so many members of the public help me you know, and contribute to the crowdfunder. I mean, I had 30,000 people in the end who contributed, and which you know, I find incredibly touching. But I think I think people could see what was happening. This was a you know this was a bully, it were, who was just trying to essentially shut me up, and um, and I think that the, 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 I think the thing which sort of like really sh most shocks me about it is that I just thought it's just a complete fiction that we have freedom of the press, and um, you know I just really felt this is you know we do not have freedom of press in with these kind of laws in Britain, and we can see lots of other instances where that's true. And just to give you one example of where these same laws were used to silence a journalist and to stop the truth coming out, there's a journalist in Britain called Myrian Jones who was at the BBC where he tried to report on Jimmy Savile's um, abuse and couldn't and failed to. And there's now, it's a very interesting Netflix documentary actually which has come out last year which sort of tells that story, but it was the same thing. He was the th it was the threat of libel which stopped them publishing that in his lifetime, and it that's why it only came out after he died. And in terms of the twists and turns which your case took, what were some of the setbacks that you encountered in your defence? So, I th so initially, I think when I was here, so when it first started in 2019, I just thought the whole thing was ridiculous. And I, <coughs> I refused to take it seriously because <coughs> I could prove what I'd said. You know, it's not just that we'd published it previously in the Guardian Observer. I had the underlying proof. I said that he lied about his covert relationship with the Russian government. And that's because we had the, he, we, we had the proof which showed that. 
And um, so, uh, you know, I was quite, I was quite confident there's in defamation, there's a defense of absolute truth. And I was like, well, you know, okay, bring it on. And, um, but then I got caught in a terrible Kafkaesque ordeal, which is that we had a preliminary hearing where the judge sits there, or you have a high court judge who sits there and, and decides the meaning of the words. And I was like, well, it's quite obvious what the meaning of the words are. I said he lied about his covert relationship with the Russian government. That seems quite straightforward to me. But in this, you know, I sat through this hearing and you're there, you, you know, the barristers are arguing at both sides. You've got no idea of what's going on. And, and at the end of it, you know, later that day, I got, we got the meaning and it, the, the judge had come up with something else entirely. The judge said that, He'd lied about his relationship with the Russian government in relation to the acceptance of funds, uh, foreign funds, in contravention of the law um, on such. So the judge, the, judge, the judge was alleging that I'd said that he'd accepted this money, which I'd never said, always been quite careful to say there was no evidence to say that he had, and that was against the law. So I had to also prove sort of criminality. And so, you know, there was no way I could do that. And, um, you know, my, bar my, my, my legal team were like, it doesn't matter because we have this defense of public interest. Um, it's a new defense in Britain. And I discovered that no journalist had actually successfully taken it to trial before. But they were like, this is, this, this is now, they brought it into British law in 2014 from the European Convention on Human Rights, the right to free speech. And so it's this idea that actually we have a right to free speech and as long as you believed what you were saying was true and you had the underlying evidence to support that and you were responsible in your journalism and could prove that, then I had to win the case. And so as I understand it, just as, as an observer on it, you were on trial, but in effect, what was the statement you had made at the TED talk was completely related to your work, which had been published in the Observer Guardian. And so both, both the TED talk and the material which it was drawn from had all been through the journalistic and editorial yes, process. Exactly. But when it came to actually defending that, you were on your own in the witness box without an organ, without the organization that was somehow semi on trial with you, except you were on your own. Yeah, and that's what, so there is, there is something which is, and it's had quite a lot of publicity recently, called a slap suit, S-L-A-P-P. -P, and that means it's called strategic litigation against public participation. And the idea of that, it's a lawsuit which is deliberately designed to intimidate and silence somebody, often a journalist or a public figure. And one of the characteristics of a slap suit is it's not taken against the organisation, it's not taken against the institution, it's taken against an individual. And that was what was so clearly about my case, was that they didn't go after the organisations with the money, it was just about me. 
But yes, I was defending what was, you know, one of the things which came up during the trial is that journalism is a team sport. You know, I couldn't, my, you know, everything I, I had done had also depended upon the input of editors and subs and fellow reporters. And, but, you know, when it came down to it in this case, I had to um, fight it alone. And, and, you know, and that was for all sorts of reasons, not just financial, but just, I, it was it, the weight of it, because the weight of it, it felt so weighty because it was about trying to destroy me as a journalist. It was about trying to destroy my reputation, destroy my credibility, destroy the body of work. And, you know, if he'd won, he would have, you know, arguably succeeded at that. How did that feel during the process? So it was, I mean, it is, I, I mean, I have to say is I pretty much, so after the meaning hearing, so when we, after we'd had this first hearing, when the judge had come up with this, I had a kind of total onslaught, a, a massive pile on from the right-wing media, the right-wing media in the UK, right-wing media in the US, the Russian state outlets, and then the kind of social media firestorm which goes with that. And it was really overwhelming. And, you know, a lot of it was just, it was false, it was like, you know, it was sort of, you know, vitriolic commentary based on false facts. And there's nothing you can do. Like, when you're in that situation, getting that kind of, you, you feel, you know, just... Uh, and I, you know, uh, that's me coming, saying that, having had four or five years of like, t you know, ongoing, frequent, massive sort of abuse. But that moment, it just, because I was caught in this legal machinery, there's no way out. That was the thing I found about being the sort of subject of a lawsuit. There's no way out. You, you're just trapped in the system. And I was now trapped by this mad meaning the judge had come up with. And I was trapped by this sort of abuse which went alongside it. And I, I really couldn't cope with it. I found it really, really difficult. And um, the, but they then went after my solicitor. Sort of they, it was a sort of separate lawsuit which conflicted her out from representing me. And then one of the most difficult things is that I had to go through the discovery process. So this investigation I'd been working on for four years at that point, and as part of the legal case, banks got access to, the, their legal team got access to my computer, my phone, my email account, my WhatsApp account, my Signal account, my Twitter messages, my iCloud, my Google Docs, everything got searched. And, um, you know, they came up, I think the first searches brought up 40,000 documents. Um, and so, you know, we winnowed that down, but there were still 5,000 documents which I had to hand over and which all had to be reviewed. And it was just that knowledge that everything that I've ever written, you know, could be weaponized and used against me. And, um, yeah, I just, I think sort of bits of my brain actually shut down. I couldn't really cope with the sort of, you know, thinking about the consequences of that. But the judgment that you succeeded in securing as it was handed down has utterly changed the landscape for your fellow journalists. It, yeah, it's, I, mean, I, I mean, it's kind of, it's the whole thing about it is that, you know, I, I, 
I, I went in, you know, I, I did this sort of from survival and because essentially he wanted me to say, he was just determined to get me to say this thing about there was no Russian interference in Brexit. It's all he wanted to say. And he wanted me to say it's not true, that what I had said was not true. And I knew it was true. And so that was what, it's like, you know, it's being told that you've got to say that black is white. And I just, you know, I just couldn't do it. But, and so that was the reason I ended up, you know, having to fight it. But along the way, we now have this, it's, so it's the first time that a, a journalist, we've managed to have this public interest defence, and it's worked, and that's now case law for, um, you know, other journalists and other cases. And hopefully as well, it puts off other people from doing the, trying to take the same sorts of suits um, and we also have, I mean, one of the amazing things about it is that although I couldn't defend it on truth in the end, theoretically, nonetheless, I did defend it on truth. And the, the judges, the, in the judgment, there's this amazing um, judgment. The judge read everything, every document in the case and did this forensic analysis of exactly what the facts were of exactly how many times Aaron Banks visited the Russian embassy, of exactly how many times he was communicating with the Russian ambassador, of the details of the business deals that he was offered. And it's all now in there. It's all now in this high court judgment, which is, you know, on the, on the, on the record. And I think that is kind of significant. And Carol, I suppose the themes of your work which had brought you into this arena, um, the role of social media in disinformation, the subsequent threat to our democracies, where are we at now in your opinion in 2022 on those broader matters, the UK and beyond? So, I mean, w one of the things I found most difficult about this case was that, so I, went, I was in the High Court in January and, you know, this was this case about the, the biggest funder of the referendum and about his relationship with Russia. And as in that case, all this new evidence kind of spilled out into court. And it was totally ignored by the British media. You know, there was not a single report on it apart from in The Guardian. And one month later, Russia invaded Ukraine. And suddenly this thing which, you know, my fellow journalists and some politicians and historians and, of course, many activists from Ukraine, etc., had been talking about this threat of Russian aggression was suddenly proved in the most, you know, horrible and visceral way. And one of the key things about the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which I'm sure Larissa will talk about later. It didn't start this year. It didn't, Russia didn't invade Ukraine in February. It invaded Ukraine in 2014. And it invaded Ukraine in 2014, and exactly the same moment, it also, uh, it also weaponized the internet in America and Europe. So before it invaded Ukraine, it attacked social media. It tried to change reality on social media to change people's perceptions before it sent in the tank. 
this is a kind of, this is what, in Russia, it's, you know, we call it hybrid warfare. You use military means and you use information as a weapon. And that's what it did in Ukraine. And that's what it also did in the West. It weaponized information in the West. And we didn't, you know, we didn't realize that was happening in 2014. And it's only, it was only in 2000, after the US election in 2016, that we realized, we began to realize that. And we began to realize, actually, it's a combination. So it's, you know, it's a foreign government which is attacking us, but it's being enabled by the social media platforms. And this was where the role of Facebook in all of this is sort of such an important thing because it's the sort of threat surface. It's how, it's the conduit by which a foreign government was able to change reality, essentially. And as you look across the world now, you know, five or six years later from some of these first set of events, as you look at voting laws, regulation around content online, if you look at the behaviours of companies and expectations and the laws in which they operate. Are we any safer now from this weaponization potential? I mean, no. I mean, the, so what, what happened after 2016, we, there were two things, I think, which made us realize how the world, how this new technology was made us vulnerable. And in the US, they had these big investigations, the Mueller report and these congressional inquiries. And that showed chapter and verse how Russia attacked America and American democracy. And a large part of that it did via social media. And as part of those investigations, they indicted dozens of people. They arrested people. They put people in jail. And, you know, they catalogued the, the dangers of social media. And just to compare, in Britain, we've had no inquiries, no investigations. We refused to acknowledge that any of this happened. There was been one report by a parliamentary committee which the government tried to suppress. And the, the report said, we need to have a proper inquiry into this. And the government has refused to have it. And, and then the second thing I think was, I think the Cambridge Analytica scandal was the other side of that. It showed actually that how all of us are vulnerable because our behavior online reveals things about ourselves and which is, can all be captured as small pieces of data and whoever can gather that, those pieces of information then is able to potentially influence us uh, in ways which we may not realize. And, um, and essentially, with both of those things, we, nothing has changed. I mean, there's been a few tiny changes. Facebook now has a library where it, it, it collects the ads which are shown. It works very imperfectly, but we didn't have that before in 2016. But in the sense of our national security and the protection of our elections, there's, n there's no changes. We, you know, in Britain, we've had no laws 
which have been brought in to protect against that. There's no real regulation of the tech companies around elections and politics. Um, and the technology's only moved on. 2016 is now, you know, six years away. And we know that technology, you know, we, I think the whole thing is, is that we, were, we weren't aware of what was happening in 2016 until afterwards. I think it's a sure bet that other technology will have developed, which is affecting us now, which we're not aware of at this moment. We may only find out about later. You see what I mean? It's very hard to keep up, I think. And Carol, your journalism practice has also changed in the intervening um, time. What are you doing or what did you start when you founded The Citizens? So, well, I think the whole thing is, is that going, the, 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 this experience of the lawsuit and just this thing of being targeted, you know, I really, part of this targeting was to make me into this sort of controversial, I call myself a kind of cultural hate figure in Britain. It's like, it's really for the kind of like the right wing, even though my subject and my investigation was not political, it was not political, but it was into a subject that was seen as very political, you know, the Brexit referendum. So although all I was trying, it wasn't partisan, nonetheless, a way of undermining me was to make me into an extreme partisan figure. And so it became actually very difficult for me um, in terms of what I was doing journalistically. And then when the lawsuit started, I just needed more, I, you know, I didn't have that, because, I, because essentially the organisation didn't financially back me, and it was partly this idea that I was a freelancer, although I'd worked for the organisation for 16 years, the, I, I sort of had this, like, actually, I need more support, and I need to find other ways of getting the story out. And so I ended up, I set up this small, very small non-profit, and with the idea that, that essentially it comes from the idea that I think we, we, have, we still hang on to this sort of old-fashioned idea of journalism that, journal, you know, w when we find out the bad stuff, we can print it in the newspaper and things change as a result of it. And, and now, you know, we, we're in a different age. We're in this age of no, no shame, no accountability. And it's... You can publish, you know, my feeling was, was that I could publish things in The Guardian. Guardian readers would say, that's terrible. And then nothing would change. And so I've, you know, I was sort of really was sort of thinking about, well, how do you need to get it out to different audiences? You need to tell the stories in different ways. And part of that experience as well was that I was in this Netflix documentary. And so seeing how that went out to 180 countries and lots of young people saw it, I was like, oh, okay, you know, I do think there's ways of doing journalism on, you know, to, uh, in different forms, in different ways, and very much, you know, I, I, it's not enough for me just to publish the stuff. I, I, you know, I, I, if I'm publishing something where I think there is something really profoundly wrong, which is what I think there has been, and that, you know, our democracy is at risk, then I, I also want to try and convince people to do something about that. And I, th I think in that way, it's that that sort of campaigning journalism is, is where I sort of like, my heart is, I think. And what is the model that you're pursuing through the citizens then? It's, it's, ba 
basically, it's the, what we're trying to do is, is taking the idea of campaigning journalism. So it's taking investigative journalism and it's taking sort of like trying creative storytelling, telling the story in, you know, young people, it seems to me that they're either on TikTok or they're on Netflix. So they either want a minute or they want a sort of series, and, but they're not reading The Guardian. So it's kind of reaching them, reaching them in these places. And also, you know, campaigning for change. So one of the things that we've done is this whole thing about the British government refusing to investigate foreign interference in our elections. We brought together a group of MPs, so four MPs and two Lords from all different parties to try and force the government to have this inquiry. So we took a case to the High Court and um, that's been refused permission, but we're now taking that to the European Courts of Justice, arguing that we can't have free and fair elections in Britain until we have this information. Thank you so much to Carol Cadwalder for joining Warren Keller in Dingle. On our next episode, Warren is joined by Ukrainians living in Ireland to discuss their experiences of the Russian invasion. To make sure you don't miss that or any of our future episodes, subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. This has been the South Wind Blows production, and I'm Christopher Kassan. Thank you for joining us. I look forward to your company next time on Ireland's Edge.